Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode is sponsored by local entrepreneur Danny O'Donovan of QuickMinutes.com. QuickMinutes is a specialized meeting management application that streamlines the administrative process in running a meeting. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Two Naris podcast powered by Unity Media Network. I am your host, James Leonard, joined by my co-host, Timmy. And this week is going to be a fabulous podcast because we're joined by the wonderful Dr. Sharon Lambert from UCC. How are you, Sharon? Hi, how are you? Thanks so much for having me. Very excited. What do you think of our gaff? This is just super amazing and impressive and really professional and well done. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And I've really enjoyed the podcast for the last few weeks. Great, um, so great. I'm delighted that you yeah. thought I could come on. So thank you. No, we couldn't. We're delighted to have you, Sharon. You yeah. know, um, myself and James, we've followed a little bit of your work and it's, like it's really, really helped me on a personal level with my own stuff and I'm sure it's helped James as well. You know, so thank you very much. Yeah. We couldn't have a podcast on addiction without having Sharon Lambert on. So we're like mutual stalkers. We're stalking Definitely. each other without knowing <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, when we decided to do the podcast, you were the first person I ranked, man, if you can remember. It before lockdown, you know, I was like, have to have Sharon on because you explain the causes of addiction um and complex kind of psychological stuff in accessible language that I think that um, everybody should know about, you know. I think we, in addiction, we might think that all our problems are self-made or we all make bad choices, but sometimes there's forces at play that we've no control over that shape how we behave, um, and we'll get to that. But first, can we agree on a term? I know you don't like the term addict or clean and stuff like that, so can we talk about that for a few minutes? Um, yeah, so... And I know it's difficult for me to say say that because for people who are in recovery there, the la- the language that you use, and James and I had a row about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I suppose, you know, you're entitled to use whatever terms you're comfortable with. And I guess if you're, my concern is for people who don't understand the path that you've walked, using words like that gives a certain image of an individual. So if you say addict to somebody who maybe doesn't know somebody who's been in addiction, they mightn't understand mm. the huge emotional pain that somebody has been on. So for me, the word addict does not bring in everything that you need to know. What has the person's story been? How hard was the journey that they walked on? Um, so if you, you know, even if you think about your own stories, um, Social exclusion and poverty and marginalization and poor access to education are all things that are bad for people's mental health. And sometimes when people have poor mental health, if they can't access the services that they need, they use substances to help alleviate the pain. 
And I just don't feel for me that the word addict gives the whole context. I think that it's a stereotyped word and that's why I'm uncomfortable with it. Now, I know people in recovery use that word to describe themselves. And mm. I do get a little twinge, yeah. as you know, when I hear the words, I feel uncomfortable with it. Um, but it's your life story and your lived experience and you're entitled to use that language. For me, uh, that's not my journey. I, I wasn't in addiction. I'm not in recovery. Um, so for me, I suppose it's a, an academic debate. And I'm interested in how you take away the stigma for the general public. And addict for me just holds a lot of stigma and I absolutely detest the word clean I hate it because the opposite of clean is dirty Dirty, and uh, I don't think anybody who is is using drugs is dirty I think they're vulnerable and I think that they are in a lot of emotional pain Mm. and I don't like that word and Mm. I I really really don't like it when people use that word in services or in court settings when they talk about somebody producing clean urine or somebody has been clean for 12 months, it some way insinuates that before that and prior to that, that they were dirty. And I've watched mm. all of your podcasts mm. up to date. You've been really honest about the vulnerabilities that you had and the, the situations that you were in that contributed to the decisions that you've made. And when you were using, for me, you would not have been dirty. Mm-hmm. You would have been people who would have been in pain and who were reaching out for help. So that's, yeah. you know, that that's the, the issue I have. And and one of the things is that I, I personally feel that addiction is a mental health issue. I don't think it's a criminal justice issue. And if you think about depression and anxiety, 20 years ago in Ireland, they had a lot of stigma and people didn't talk about their mental health issues. And we've moved forward now and we're always saying to people, it's important to talk about your mental health. But for me, there's still a lot of stigma associated with addiction. And if if addiction is to be considered um, a health issue, then it means there shouldn't be any stigma. So, you know, if I go to a hospital tomorrow and I say I'm really depressed and I'm really struggling and somebody else comes in and they say, you know, I'm I'm using opiates or I'm taking tablets or whatever it is and I'm really struggling. For me, both of us are presenting with mental health issues and we deserve the same treatment and the same care. And it concerns me that the language that we use around addiction generates stigma. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think um, you make good point there around addict giving no kind of room for context. Like in recovery or in, in the rooms, in recovery rooms, they say, I always understood addiction as to be the act of using the drug. But the problem is way deeper. Like it, the addiction, as I understood it, the addiction manifests itself in drug use. But the problem is not drug use. Like since I came into recovery, I've been around loads of drugs. I've worked in homeless services, worked with addicts. <laughs> there we go again. But now working with drug users and I've been in the presence of people who are using. I never wanted to use the drug. Why? Because I was after addressing the underlying issue. That tells me the issue, the problem was never the drug in the first place. It wasn't. And mm. I think maybe something like um, somebody who uses drugs, um, like in an eating disorder, you know, um, this person has an eating disorder. Don't call them food addicts, you know. Um, I think we have to leave some room for context. So, but I think then as well for people in recovery that go to NNA because this is the free stuff that's available. Um, a recovering addict is kind of like an identity that they wear 
and it kind of builds camaraderie and kind of it's good for social groups and you know finding new pairs this is i'm not a junkie or i'm not a scumbag these are the labels mm-hmm. and i suppose we become used to carrying labels and addict is another one and you know and i'm always open to change and i'm always open to learn a new way so when you spoke to me like that i began to think critically of how i was actually describing myself what do you think then yeah um <clears throat> That word junkie was is a, like the way you hate addict, you know. Um, I have family members that are heroin addicts, you know, and I've often been in the company of people and they'd speak about somebody as in heroin addiction or something else in that nature and they'd call them a junkie, you know. And for me, that word really, really hits here because I understand what it's like to be somebody addicted to. Drugs, alcohol, gambling, you know. And um, I know, and I know why I was addicted to these things, you know. And I know as well why these people are addicted to their, their, their blocking out all their, that pain, you know, that emotional pain. And um, that's probably stemmed from childhood or whenever. Um, and it's a very, very, very hard thing for me to really get my head around at times sometimes i've just walked away from certain people's company i've used that kind of language you know and so um I understand. and i that makes me really sad when i yeah. hear people using a word like junkie yeah. because what you're saying is that you're a bad person mm-hmm. and as somebody who has worked in addiction services and my research now is in the area i have met very few bad people i have met lots of people who were very sad and who were very hurt but i have met very very few bad people and when i hear somebody saying the word junkie and putting that identity on somebody um it it just makes me so sad that somebody might even identify themselves and I, i remember working with young people and sometimes they would use that those words to describe you know you'd say why do you think you're you know you've you've come in to see me today and it's because I'm a junkie mm. and to hear a 15 or a 16 year old identify themselves as that. So for me, like, you know, obviously I know James a little bit longer than I, I know you Timmy, but for mm. me, James is not an addict. James is James. And yeah. he's, you know, this super bright man that I know from being a student mm. in UCC and you are this, you know, gifted builder. So, you know, I don't Thank know, you. I don't know you from your past, um, I only know you from now and your identity to me and your identity yourselves is different. Um, so that's that's my issue with the terminology is that when you say the word addict, what do people see in mm. their head? And I think they see somebody who's lying on the street, howling at the moon. Yeah. And when I see somebody lying on the street whose behavior is difficult to watch, I look and I say, I wonder what their pain was that they need to be here. Because, you know, when you see somebody in that situation and people say, oh, there's the choices that they've made. Do they look like they're having a good time? They're not. Uh, They're in deep emotional pain. And if there's any way it could be different, they would try. But because their emotional pain is so deep, they need to medicate themselves just to be able to put one foot in front of the other. So that's my issue with that terminology. I think it's stigmatizing. Yeah, and when, you know, when you're talking there about medicating yourself, that's what I done. Like when I started off using 
Norway's young person and I thought I was doing it for my mum used to say to me, What are you doing? What are you doing? And 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 some teachers or whatever, uh, youth workers, um, what are you doing? Just thought I liked the buzz of it. But it wasn't actually I was actually medicating myself because my mental health was so bad at the time. And looking back, I would add suicidal ideation, you know, around eighteen, nineteen, twenty especially. Um if I didn't have the drugs at that time I'd probably be dead today. Them drugs helped me survive that time, you know. And even though my quality of life was shit, I was still alive. Mm. And, like, I worked with people in addiction, um, especially people in homeless services, and they're thinking, all they have in this world is the drug. You take that drug away from them and they're going to the river. Because mm. how else can you survive such a harsh reality? Yeah, it's a fair point. I could definitely agree with you there. Because I often said, I think I said it in the first podcast, that... Um, without drugs or anything at all to take me away from the emotional pain I was going through, um, I possibly would have um, taken my own life because I, I, I didn't know how to handle the, the emotional pain. I didn't even know what it was because I had absolutely no awareness. I was so caught up in my head. Um, I wasn't able to focus or give my attention to anything else, only all the negative stuff that was going on in my head, you're not good, you're bad, you're stupid, you know, nobody likes you, you know, and I had all these trust issues at the time as well that um, I couldn't give anybody any form of trust, and I could leave myself go a little bit, you know, and um, when, when uh, alcohol and drugs came into my life, all that changed. You know, I was able to talk to my first girl for the first time. Mm-hmm. Never spoke to a girl. I would die. I'd go, I'd literally die. Um, and other things then. But with that then, Sharon came the violence. You know, the violence came out in my life then. And uh, the attitude towards people. Because I started building this, a, a bit of an ego for myself then. Because I was... Being, uh, I started creating an image as a big, strong, handy fella, you know, um, which was there was positive and negative effects to that. You know, the positive was I was kind of left alone by bigger and older fellas, but the negative then was I was getting a lot of negative attention in in my area and and um and things like that. So, so yeah, there's there's a couple of things that you said there that I think are really important. So, you know, James, you said about, you know, focus on the drugs. If drugs were the problem, everybody who uses drugs would develop a a dependency or an Mm. addiction. They don't. Lots of people use drugs. People have always used mind-altering substances. There are some people who, when they use drugs, cannot stop because it gives you something that you need that you don't have within yourself at the moment. And then, you know, Timmy, you were talking about the violence. Mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, you've spoken about that in the podcast about the regrets you have around that behavior. And for me, when I listen to it, it sounds like that was really important behavior that you needed to keep yourself not just physically safe, but emotionally safe. Mm -hmm. Because while you might present to the outside world, as the hard man inside you were feeling very low and very wounded and in order to feel emotionally safe so that nobody could get in there you had to use these behaviors for survival um so 
you know, when we think about psychological trauma, um, you know, people who've, who've lived in poverty and been excluded and, and you've both been honest about the fact that your stories have been difficult when you were children and that can have an impact on how you manage stress. Um, there's a dog barking in the background. I can hear him, yeah. We will, we will. I'll fix him after. I'm yeah. only joking. To the I, animal lovers, I'm only kidding. I, just in case anybody who's listening <laughs> just thinks in case. that we're, we're, we haven't heard it. Yeah, you can see uh, their houses yeah. there. But, yeah, he probably fine. sees a bird on the roof now or something yeah. like that. But, yeah. but, you know, for people who've experienced a lot of what we call childhood adversity or toxic stress, it primes you. Uh, it, it tells you that you're in danger. When you're small, you say, oh, the world is a bit scary. So whether that's because there might be violence in your home or there might be violence in your community. So we have a fight or flight response system. Mm -hmm. So that fight or flight response system is there to keep you alive. So some of the behaviors that you feel shameful about now are actually behaviors that were there to protect you and keep you alive. And yes, they did hurt you. And yes, they did hurt other people. But, but for the fact that you had them, you know, you said yourself, where would you, where would you be? Mm. And one of the things I think particularly young men is that, um, you know, biologically, there's a lot of stuff going on in the body as well. So a lot of the stuff that sometimes is going on is actually normal. Mm. And then if you throw some stress in on top of it, you can have a huge stress response. So that fight or flight system is, is more active than it should be. So even at times when you're safe, your brain actually thinks that you're in danger and it triggers your fight or flight response system. So some people flight and they run away and uh, they disappear and they hide under their duvet covers and they don't come out into the world. And obviously for society and professionals, that's a much easier group to work with. They don't cause you any problems. For people who go into fight mode to survive, you see it, you hear it, you hear them coming before you see them. And people find that really difficult to work with. But actually, if you take a step back and you take a deep breath and you say, rather than looking at the behavior and you take a deep breath and you say, I wonder what's happened. I wonder what has happened that this person needs to present as very aggressive in order to feel safe. So another word I have a problem with, particularly in relation to young people, is challenging behavior. I think that it's adaptive behavior. So if you have a ch child who lives in an environment where they feel quite frightened and then you take them and you put them into a school, they still feel frightened. They don't know that this environment is different and that they're safer here. They still have that behavior. And what adults sometimes see is challenging behavior. But what the child is telling you with their behavior is I'm finding it really hard to manage my world. I don't know how to communicate that to you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kick off because I'm scared and all they want is for somebody to see because they don't have the language around it. So they mm. can't say I'm scared. They feel it though. Their whole body feels it and that's why they react. And as adults, we should be able to take a step back and say, I wonder what this is about instead of focusing on the behavior in the child about wondering what's that about. I remember when I was in secondary school particularly and I spoke about this last week, or a couple of weeks ago, like, I was a bright boy. I was a very bright boy, and I enjoyed learning, and I enjoyed certain subjects like history, English, whatever. But in secondary school, because of, I suppose, my mental state at the time, I wasn't able to concentrate, you know. 
And um, but none of the teachers down there, they never come over and ask you what's wrong. Or it was always put your bold scumbag tug scut. That's kind of what we were told. And we were put into class uh, seven or eight of us, and we were just left there up until the leaving sort. No massing us really. Um, but looking back now, you know, as an adult, everything I know now with true psychology and sociology and all philosophy and everything, I'm looking back now and I'm looking at well, who else was in the class that had a load of potential and that weren't able to realise it. You know, I've been to some people that my age are, are, have died in the meantime, do you know what I mean? And there's a huge onus on the teacher and even in the prison service. Like the prison officer has a lot of contact with the prisoners on the landing. And if they were any bit informed, like we talked about trauma-informed, if they were any bit aware of this type of stuff, they could actually pinpoint the challenging prisoner or the challenging child and put more energy into them instead of focusing on the star pupil, let's say, because they need less attention anyway. You know, but I think the the system is set up in a way as reward those who are already good and, you know, kind of disregard those who are who find it more difficult I think you know certainly in, in when I, I spoke at a senior management conference in the Cork ETB um, just before lockdown principals now and CEOs and stuff like and they would ask me a question if there was one thing you would, you could if there was one thing you would say to influence senior management and I says have your teachers trauma informed have them trained in this type of stuff and because there's a lot of potential going untapped and the teacher has a lot of contact always with a child. Because sometimes I I struggle to when I see an adult, particularly with children, where a child is misbehaving or has challenging behaviour, and if I see an adult kind of struggling to deal with that, I can get frustrated and annoyed. But I have to remind myself that most people haven't had the opportunity to study psychology like I have. Um so when they, they look they don't they, they that's what they see you see bold and challenging but you know anybody who works with children when you tell a small child that you're proud of them mm. how how tall they stand yeah. they can go from two foot to six foot in 30 mm. seconds Um, when you're constantly down on the child and you know they must do better and they must do better there's no, there's very little growth in that i am i know I suppose I'm not here to defend any other professions and I'm often quite critical of a lot of professions. I know that Ireland has one of the highest uh, staff uh, teacher ratio in Europe for primary school. Mm. So I can imagine that it must be very difficult if you haven't been taught about trauma and then you're in a child in a, in a class with 30 children and you're like, I just can't, I can't do this. And then when you're talking about adults who present as challenging, when you have an adult man... Mm who's kicking off and that's what you see if you're not trained in trauma what you see is you see kicking off and you feel in danger and then what happens is you have two people who are feeling stressed and traumatized mm. they're going to butt heads yeah. uh, and even for me when I've worked in services where people might come in angry there are days when I find it harder and I might be really in my head be really cross who does he think he is coming in here wrecking the place and talking to us like I'm going to kill him <laughs> And then, you know, because I might have got up in the morning, there was no milk for the coffee and I've left yeah, the house yeah. like I want to shoot somebody. And then, you know, then you have another day where you go in and you're in, oh, peace yeah. and love. I'm, you know, or some kind of earth mother and yeah. somebody comes in and they're calling you a C-U-N-T and they're kicking the door. And you're like, come in to me, come in to me and tell me what is wrong. God love us, <laughs> come in and don't shout and give it out. So I think there's, 
you know, it's about educating staff and also not only just educating, but supporting them. Because one of the things I think that people forget about is that, you know, and I know you, you, you talk a lot about your own area in the area you grew up in, but actually trauma is quite common and it happens in a lot of houses. Mm-hmm. And it's not just in houses where there's poverty. Um, do people maybe with more money hide it better because they have better resources possibly? Um, certainly being in poverty and being excluded from education increases your trauma experiences because you have less options. Um, but you might meet a professional who actually lived with domestic violence as a child. And then when you have an adult who comes in and they're being challenging because they're frightened, uh, the professional in that case might actually be taken back to when they were a child. So sometimes I am judgmental about the way people are treated and I have to remind myself actually that I don't know the professional story either. And so it's two things. It's teaching them about trauma and then making sure that your workforce are supported so that your workforce are also emotionally safe because a lot of people have their own stories too. Yeah, it just shows how important it is as well. If you're working with individuals or working with people, to know your own triggers and have some personal development on yourself, do you know? Because like when I, um, I do prison officer, recruit prison officer training, myself and Sheila from the Cockleins, we go up to recruits you know, every month. There's a different group and... Um, we just do a workshop with them. And you're, like what you were saying there, if you're met with an adult that's irate, like the last thing you want to do is meet him irate. It's not personal on you. That uniform could represent so much. Like if he's been going up to prison visiting his father or his brother, and now he's in prison and what the Navy uniform represents, it's nothing against the individual officer. He's having a rant. He's having a moment. He's in prison, whatever is going on. And his life wasn't great. He's obviously he's in prison. Leave them out the rent and come back the next day, and you don't have to be nice and nice, but just it's not it's not personal on you, and that will make your job so much easier. But what I've seen and Timmy probably seen it as well, officers that get engaged in conflict with prisoners, and then it ends up in fights and it's tension on the landing and everything. So hopefully, mm. the, the 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 new prison service ethos or the new ethos of the prison services room, have a more informed, more compassionate officers which creates a healthier landing and I think that course yourself and Sheila done was very would be very helpful just to, just to show just to show uh, prison officers um, that a lot of the prisoners in the prison have had really really difficult childhoods and stuff you know and a lot of them are there because uh, of stuff that happened in their younger years and they probably weren't taught how to to, to, to treat people right or, you know, like my own, like I, I listened to one of your past podcasts, there was somebody else and um, you spoke about uh, a child going into school, you know, and if there's stuff going on at home for that child, they're going into school, they're not going to be able to sit down and listen to the teacher and take in information because they're worried about what they may be going home to later on, you know. And that really, really hit home for me because that was that was who I was, you know. Um, and I don't think, I will say this, I don't think there's anyone bad. There's no teacher bad. There's no pris- prison officer bad. They're just uneducated in terms of, why people are the way they are you know that would be my 
idea in it you know um you teach a few you teach i i actually watched another thing about you that I'm, I'm fascinated with you know at this day but uh there's something that you do a lot of um, work on it's called aces adverse childhood experiences will you tell us a small bit about that please sharon yeah so i suppose the term has become quite popular in the last few years um but it's not the science behind it isn't new so you know we've known for a long time that when you have a lot of stress that it affects your physical health and it affects your mental health and if your mental health is affected you're at risk for substance dependence and if you're at risk for substance dependence you're at risk for other issues like crime and homelessness um so a, a number of years ago a uh, uh, a guy in the, in the in the states in the center for disease control we're hearing all about cdc lately now with coronavirus um so the cdc in the states they did a very large study where they looked at aces or adverse childhood experiences in people's lives and they used um a questionnaire that had 10 questions on it so the questions were broken down into abuse um, different types of abuse and neglect and uh, other issues in the home like living with a parent with a mental health issue or living with a parent who was using substances and they asked those 10 questions. And what they found was that people who had scored four, well, I suppose one of the first things they found was that actually a lot of people have stuff um, in the general population. A lot of people would have one or two of those mm. items. But what they found then was people who had maybe four or more of those were at higher risk for physical illness and mental illness and other negative life events. So... Why is that then? So when you're born, um, only 20% of your brain is fully formed. The rest of your brain isn't fully formed until you're somewhere between the age of 23 and 25. Men are a little bit slower than women at the old catching up on the brain. I agree. <laughs> and um, by the time you're four, your brain has reached about 70% of what it will be by the time you're an adult. So if you're living with, um, in a house where one of your parents is very stressed and they're struggling, um, they might not, when you cry, they might not be able to look after you straight away because they are so stressed themselves. So when you leave a child then crying for a long time, that's stress. Because, you know, mm -hmm. if you think about when you were an adult, when you were, you were stressed, you know, say, if, you know, God forbid something was going on in my life and somebody was very ill. I, I had a daughter in hospital early this year, so that would have caused me a lot of stress. Like as an adult, I can ring people and say my workplace or whatever. I can say I can't come into it because I'm actually struggling today because I'm finding the situation very stressful. But if you think about a child, they don't go into school in the morning. And and, and I why wouldn't I go to work when I'm stressed? Because I couldn't concentrate. I might cry. I might get cross with people. It would be better for me to be at home. And that's what I need right now. And I can get those needs met. If I'm a child, I'm going to be farmed into school and if I'm having exactly the same feelings as Sharon Lambert, the adult down the road is having, mm. I'm not going to go in and say, guys, this is today's not really a good day for me. Not feeling it. I would, I probably need to lie down under a quilt for a couple of hours and people bring me stuff and make me feel better. But we don't, we keep going and we think that they're going to be okay. Um, and when you do that, then the behavior gets worse and worse and worse. And then people say, I can't handle this. And then they start to get excluded. So, that's the adverse childhood experiences. We know now that there are 
you know, thousands of studies, I'd say at this stage, mm. that have shown the link between higher levels of adversity in childhood and other issues. Um, and it's not because people are bad people, but the more stress you put on somebody, their tolerance level for stress gets smaller. So if you're in, you know yourself, when you get up in the morning, you've had a great morning, there's milk for the coffee, the kids are fighting, you've got petrol in the car and you get into it and you're not running late and you're driving down the road and some fella pulls out in front of you and he starts blowing the horn and giving you the finger and you're like, all right, buddy, chill. <laughs> Another morning you get up and there's no milk and the kids are fighting and you get into the car and the petrol light is on and you're late for something, you're driving down the road and the same fella pulls out in front of you and he blows the horn and you're like, okay, <laughs> bring it on, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so that's our tolerance of stress. But the more stress you put on people, their tolerance level starts to get smaller and smaller. So something that, you know, a, a small child might go into school and it might be something as simple as get out your lunch boxes. And if they're finding it really hard to concentrate anyway, and they're stressed and worried about that, something that you think is really small might be a really big deal for them because they're, they're done. The straw that broke the camel's back happened a year ago. Mm. And now they have no, no space left for any more of the stress that you're going to give them. So then all you see is this behavior. Um, my issue with sometimes when people talk about ACEs, my issue with that is that the original study used those 10 items. And those 10 items place all of the blame within the family home. And Everything that happens in a family home happens in the context of the society that we live in. So poverty mm. is not a choice. People are in poverty because they are not getting access in a fair way to other opportunities. Society, so poverty is a structural societal problem that is caused by government policies. And that's an adverse experience on children. The biggest predictor of mental of depression is poverty. And if you have a mom who's got a couple of kids and there's very little money, she's not going to be sitting around at the kitchen table singing Kumbaya and doing crochet with the kids because her head is all over the place. She's thinking about where she's going to get food this week and she's stressed. And when you're a stressed parent, you shout more. Mm -hmm. And when you're a stressed parent you and you shout more, you feel bad about yourself. And maybe, you know, you need to drink a bit to make yourself feel better. And now that drink is going to be working. So to see that all of those adversities happen in the home and that there's nothing else to blame for it, only that the people living in that house are, are not good people. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Do you know, in you done uh, research for Cox Simon Community, and you researched the uh, you done a profile of the people that was using the service, and compared to the general population, they scored way higher amongst in terms of adverse childhood experiences. Um, do you know, like sometimes people can have this kind of moralistic view of addiction. Do you think that the A study is the counter argument to that? Like, as in terms of some people think that. And you'd see it a lot online, just saying, no, this is all fault. He chose to pick up, you know, but when, when you learn about somebody has been brought up in poverty in a single parent family with a big load of siblings or their parent in prison or brother in prison, or they've been abused and all these multiply the chances of ending up in homelessness. 
then the moralistic argument doesn't hold weight anymore, really. You know, when you think about the ads for children's services, where people are asking you to donate money for the, the children who need you, and you know when you see that picture of that child and your heart breaks and you say, right, I'm going to give them a few bob. The adult that you see on the street who's using a homeless service, who's using drugs and alcohol and who's committing crime because they have to in order to survive, that's them. That's them, yeah. yeah that's that child. And when I and sometimes when you see somebody, um, it, it can be very easy when you see an adult who's behaving in a particular way that may, just to watch it can be distressing. It can make you upset to watch somebody behaving like that. I always say to myself, that's that child. Mm-hmm. Only they didn't get there quick enough. Um, and I think that, you know, but for the fact that some people have used drugs and both of you have said that about, you know, the suicidal thinking. For some people, when I meet people who are using drugs, I think you're amazing because you found something that allowed you to be able to put one foot in front of the other. Unfortunately for you, the thing that you used that made you feel better in the start is not working so good anymore. And it's causing you so much pain and so much pain for other people. And when people say about, you know, people who use drugs and crime and blah, 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 there is nobody who uses drugs and who's committing crime. There is nobody who feels as bad about themselves as the person who's doing it. And I can guarantee you, you know, uh, there is nobody who will pay for it as much as, as, as the person. So that's what I always try to say to myself when people say those things. I say, that's the child that you wanted to give a tenor to last week. Yeah. Mentality is this, the same. Because I remember when I, when I uh, initially gave up drugs and stuff, you know, um, I literally couldn't have a conversation with another adult because I didn't have the vocabulary anyway. Um, but I always felt really insecure. I couldn't get a, few, a sentence together. And um, can you just explain it? Why um, people like me who use drugs at a really young age stopped using when I hit 31, but I still felt like a child? Because when you're a child and you're developing, you're learning new skills. So, you know, when you let your child go to the shop to buy milk on their own and you're afraid that something will happen to them. But what you're doing is you're saying, right, this is their chance to build their confidence and their independence and their self-esteem. So if I remember correctly, I think you started using when you were 12 or 13. So that's a really important time, your adolescence, for learning adult skills, Mm. how to talk to people, how to negotiate your way out of problems. So because you probably don't remember a lot of that Mm. time what was your skill development so all of a sudden now you wake up one day and you're an adult and you've lost those opportunities yeah you learned skills but they're they're not so good at the moment but I think that the really important thing and like that's what I love about your podcast is that despite all of that adversity despite how awful a situation can seem there is absolutely hope And all you have to do is have one person who believes in you. And if the rest of us could be a little bit more compassionate so that when we do see, I, I, you know, you know, I know for people experiencing homelessness, people walk past and they don't even make eye contact. And I've sat on the street with people who are experiencing homelessness and you feel so small and you're looking up and these people are looking down at you. And I remember one time sitting with somebody I knew who was experiencing homelessness. And I wanted to say when people pass it, I'm actually Dr. Sharon Lambert from UCC because I felt so bad. 
I felt so worthless sitting there and I, I felt like I needed to tell people that I wasn't. And then I went, can you imagine what it's like to do this every single day? So if people, when they're walking down the street um, who see people who are using drugs or see people whose behavior is difficult to watch, just check in with yourself and know that you're safe in that moment and just be curious, be curious and say, I wonder what's happened and I wonder what's going on for that person. And remember that they're somebody's child. Mm. They might be somebody's mother, father or mother, and they might be a brother and sister. And they were once that child on the front of that box that you wanted to give money to. They didn't, they didn't make it at that time, but now they're asking you if you can help them to make it now. So that's what I think is, is having a little bit of self-belief and having a little people around you who are kinder and more compassionate instead of punching down, reach your hand down to lift somebody up. Perfect, perfect. That's fantastic. And then, like that, when I normally was on the Tommy Turner show and I was explaining to Tommy, you know, the, the people that you see on the street, they're somebody's sons and daughters. Some of them have sons and daughters themselves. They're very hurt individuals. And we look down on them like they're the worst in society when they actually need the most care and the most compassion and kindness. But you know what? Hopefully this podcast helps to open people's eyes. I think you've explained the roots of addiction fabulously. And um, I hope people get something from it. So thanks for having us on. And um, I've really enjoyed it. What about you, Tim? It is. It's very informative. Thank you very much, Thanks so much for inviting me. Thanks so much, guys. No problem. And thanks, everybody, um, for tuning in. Um, I'm sure you enjoyed that as well. Uh, If you have any questions for myself and Timmy, um, Twitter and Facebook, Sharon is on Twitter as well. Um, we'll only take nice comments please <laughs> but um, I'm sure you enjoyed it thanks again for uh, watching like and subscribing the feedback for this show has been fantastic yeah. um, we certainly Timmy are overwhelmed yeah. a lot of hurt people contacting us looking for help and support I hope those people are doing well um, I want to thank the 11 people that subscribe to our Patreon um, you help us with the costs um, uh, and if you want to subscribe to that, just head over to our Twitter. It's a pinned tweet and you can subscribe for one euro, two euro, whatever. And it just helps us kind of keep the show rolling. So um, thanks again, Sharon. Thanks, Timmy. Um, we are the Toonaris podcast powered by Unity Media Network. And next week we will see you with Katrina Toomey from Penny Dinners. Slán. Thank you. 